Thank you all so much for attending. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you to Stanley and everyone for the invitation to present. As you heard, um, I'm appointed in public health at William Patterson University. That's in um, the state of New Jersey, uh, the northern part. It's about 20 minutes west of New York City, here where I live, where I'm presenting today for my little pandemic office, aka my guest room, as we all do these days um, during the pandemic. The paper I'll be presenting today focuses on, as you uh, heard Stanley say, on uh, weight loss surgery patient support forms. And of course, I'll talk a little bit more specifically about some of the contextual factors that I think shape the dynamics and the, the friendships and the relationships and the identities that form in these forms. So uh, with that said, I'll get started. And today I'll give you an overview of my research projects in general on the experiences of bariatric patients. I'll spend the majority of the time discussing the shifts I feel are important to understanding the relationships that bariatric patients form with one another or what I'm calling bariatric biosociality. And then I'll conclude by describing some of the defining features of bariatric biosociality. So the bulk of my research has focused on understanding the experiences of weight loss surgery patients. And as I'm sure you know, but just to make clear, weight loss surgery um, is also known as bariatric surgery. So you'll hear me use both terms. And I've been interested in what it's like to be medically classified as overweight or obese or severely obese in most cases, have a bariatric procedure lose a substantial amount of weight in a relatively short period of time. So what is that experience like? And in that experience, I've been particularly interested in understanding what this transformation does or how it impacts social relationships. So just by way of a brief background, um, let me tell you a little bit about bariatric surgery before I continue. Bariatric surgery is considered by the medical community to be the only intervention for obesity that results in both durable weight loss and is an effective treatment for weight related metabolic diseases. And I say durable because, um, you know, though most people can lose weight on most any diet in the short term, in the long term, the vast majority of diets fail. So upwards of 90%. By contrast, then bariatric surgery stands in sharp contrast to diets um, where dieting and exercise not only in the durability of the weight loss, but the amount of excess weight loss and um, here excess weight loss or excess weight rather is based on BMI. So the durability, the amount of excess weight loss and the speed by which the weight is lost. And at the risk of oversimplification, all bariatric surgeries work by virtue of their restrictive effects, meaning that the volume of the stomach has been reduced to limit intake. Some procedures such as the two you see here, the vertical sleeve gastrectomy and the adjustable gastric banding procedure, which is better known generally by the trade name lap band. That's just the trade name, but it's actually called the adjustable gastric banding procedure. Um, these ones work solely by their restrictive effects. So they just reduce the capacity of the stomach and therefore the amount one can eat at a given point in time. But other procedures like the two that you see here, the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass and the biliopancreatic diversion with duodenal switch, these procedures have an additional, so they have the restrictive component, but they have an additional malabsorptive component to enhance weight loss. And herein, 
there's a rerouting of the small intestine and that limits the degree to which the body absorbs calories. So these types of surgeries are generally speaking associated with greater amount of excess weight loss than the ones that are restrictive alone. So over the last decade, I've conducted a number of different sur um, surgeries, not that, <laughs> studies examining the post-operative experiences of bariatric patients. And I've utilized semi-structured interviews with both bariatric patients and with professionals. I've done non-participant non observation in a number of different settings. And I've done some textual analysis of both public health and um, medical documents and reports on obesity and bariatric surgery. Early on, beyond the um, experiences of what it's like to be medically classified as obese or severely obese, what it's like to then undergo bariatric surgery, um, as I was talking to patients, I became interested in why those who were engaging in bariatric support forums in person, uh, online, or both were doing so long after surgery. Um, of course, it makes sense that patients would seek out support as they were considering surgery or maybe in the perioperative or right after surgery period. But why were they continuing to engage in these support forums again, online, in person, both um, for years and years out. Why were they continuing to do this? And it's my assertion that Paul Rabinow's 1996 concept of biosociality provides a useful lens for understanding this phenomenon, understanding the formation and the ongoing utilization of peer-led bariatric groups. I'm sure this is territory you're all well familiar with, but just to situate where I come to with this, um, Rabinow coined the term biosociality as a challenge to what he saw as the crude biological determinism of sociobiology. By contrast, he was interested in how sociality and identity might emerge, shift, and change during a period of time in which understandings of and treatments for disease were undergoing tremendous transformation. And since he first introduced the term, a number of scholars have examined topics um, such as patient and caregiver support forums, patient advocacy groups, often specifically looking at the way in which um, digital technologies or the internet, even more specifically, have facilitated the growth of these forums. Other researchers have looked at larger macroeconomic conditions and how these conditions create biosocial benefits for some, but do so based on the exploitation of others, therefore leading to international bioinequalities. On the whole though, we could say that research on biosociality in some way, shape or form examines contemporary shifts in how humans understand themselves, their bodies, health and illness, and do so in relation to institutions of power and larger and a larger national and international socio-political context. So uh, given Rabinow's focus on how sociality and identity might emerge, shift and change during a period of time when understandings and treatment for disease are undergoing tremendous transformation, I'll discuss some key late 20th and early 21st century shifts and linkages therein that I think created the conditions for bariatric biosociality. So the first shift pertains to the late 20th century rise in population level BMI. In 1999, a study was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, in which the authors reported that in the US, obesity has in had increased from 12 to 18%. Uh, between the years of 1991 and 1998. And in reporting their findings, the authors referred to obesity as an epidemic, 
both in the title of the article and throughout the text. Following their publication, this was Mokdad et al., articles began appearing in medical and scientific journals, also commonly utilizing this term epidemic to refer to obesity. Then in 2001, the Surgeon General at the time of the United States, David Satcher, reported that the uh, number of Americans considered to be obese had risen to 20%. He stated, quote, while we've made dramatic progress over the last few decades in achieving so many of our health goals, the statistics on overweight and obesity have steadily headed in the wrong direction, end quote. Three years later, in 2004, the World Health Organization declared obesity to be an epidemic of global proportions. That same year, in 2004, the Centers for Medicare and um, Medicaid Services, and these are forms of government, federal government, health insurance, um, one of them, um, Medicaid, is operated by the states, a little complicated, but they're forms of government health insurance in the U.S. that cover elderly, disabled, and low-income populations. So CMS in 2004 officially classified obesity as a disease. And what this did was it opened up Medicare and Medicaid treatment for obesity-related interventions such as bariatric surgery. And then in 2010, over a third of Americans were obese, uh, according to the CDC. Nearly a decade later, the dates that we have, the most recent um, dates we have data for, 2017, 2018, uh, the prevalence has increased by over 12%. So alongside this increase in population level BMI, it was an explosion of media attention devoted to covering the topic. This is what I see as the second key shift. For instance, a review of LexisNexis US news sources for articles with obesity in the headline showed 62 such articles were published in 1980 and 6,500 were published in 2004. It wasn't just the number of articles, it was also the tone and language used to discuss obesity shifted. Um, and so we began to see both in media and also government public health addresses, obesity being described in terms of crisis, urgency, and alarm, emphasizing the vital, urgent need to take action. In the early 2000s, U.S. government officials began to speak of obesity as a direct threat to the nation. For instance, in uh, 2001, Surgeons General C. Everett Koop and David Satcher announced America's war on obesity to the press. <clears throat> Satcher stated that overweight and obesity were amongst the most pressing health issues facing the nation. And as an act of patriotic duty, Satcher and Health and Human Services Secretary Tommy Thompson suggested that all Americans, again, as an act of patriotic duty, should lose 10 pounds. In 2003, Surgeon General Richard Carmona stated that obesity would condemn American children to a lifetime of, quote, serious, costly, and potentially fatal medical complications, end quote. Three years later, Carmona went on to refer to obesity as the terror within that would destroy the United States. He stated, quote, unless we do something about it, the magnitude of the dilemma will dwarf 9-11 or any other terrorist attempt. And in 2010, over 150 senior military leaders issued a report on childhood obesity. In this report, they concluded, quote, if we don't take steps now to build a strong, healthy foundation for our young people, then it won't just be our military that pays the price. Our nation as a whole will suffer also, end quote. And of course, I don't doubt that medical, public health, and government officials had concern for the health and well-being of the public in mind when they made such statements. 
Um, with that said, language is never innocent. And as philosopher Abby Wilkerson, for instance, has argued, uh, language doesn't passively represent ideas or conditions, but rather fundamentally structures how we understand and apprehend them. And so given this, perhaps it's no surprise that during this same period of time, the United States also witnessed a substantial uptick in weight-based stigma and discrimination. This is the third important shift, I feel. So weight-based stigma and discrimination have been well-documented in the employment, medical, and education sectors. And of course, weight bias also exists in other sectors and um, in interpersonal relationships as well. However, these three sectors have particular impacts on the life chances of individuals in general and higher weight uh, individuals in this case in specific. Weight bias negatively impacts both physical and mental health outcomes. Now, as historians of dieting and embodiment would argue, um, the history of weight bias is long indeed. Um, some have argued going back to the ancient Greeks in some respects. With that said, as numerous researchers have documented, there has been in the United States a dramatic uptick in weight-based stigma and discrimination over the last several decades. To back up a bit, weight-based uh, stigma and discrimination involve negative attitudes, beliefs, and stereotypes, and inequity that unfold from the erroneous, though commonly held belief, that the achievement of a normative body size is largely a matter of the will. Thus, larger body sizes and some chronic illnesses and disabilities indicate a lack of self-discipline and poor moral character. In effect, because higher weight and many forms of disability can be read on the body, and because these forms of embodiment are linked to negative stereotypes, the body becomes a mirror of the self. And in a climate of hyper-individualism, wherein people are believed to have responsibility for self-examination, self-care, self-improvement, and health more broadly, being of higher weight and ill health can be read as moral failure. This is especially the case when higher weight individuals are also persons of color, female, and working class or poor. So to become, let alone remain, of higher weight is to invite blame and accusations of social irresponsibility. Yet much of weight-based stigma and discrimination is waged allegedly with concern for the health and well-being of larger body people themselves. A public service advertisement from the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. This ran on uh, subways and buses. This waging of stigma and bias uh, allegedly for the health and well-being um, of higher weight individuals is true interpersonally, but it's also true within the fields of healthcare and public health. Um, for instance, despite strong evidence for the negative impacts of weight-based stigma and discrimination on health and well-being, debates continue to circulate in the field of public health and society at large about whether or not such stigma can actually serve as an effective behavior change motivator. These debates continue despite strong ethical concerns and a lack of any clear evidence for the effectiveness of shame-based tactics in improving health outcomes. The focus on individual responsibility for weight is also curious given the general scientific consensus that the increase in obesity has been caused by a complex interaction between biological, behavioral, and environmental factors. And yet individual behavior is typically emphasized in much of obesity prevention and health promotion interventions. This downstream approach 
is echoed within media accounts and lay discourse as well. But of course, this makes sense in a climate of neoliberal healthism or the macroeconomic doctrine and set of societal discourses, which suggests that individuals are rational, self-determining actors who can and should make their own best choices in the marketplace. Individuals are thus seen as largely responsible for their own life chances and health outcomes. This too is an important shift and key overall contextual factor. Social science scholars have argued that in the late 20th and early 21st century, uh, discourses around health play a key role in advancing neoliberal agendas. As with other life decisions in the late 20th century, individuals were increasingly called upon to adopt health facilitating lifestyle choices and avoid health harming ones. These individual health choices were seen as both a marker of good citizenship and in the aggregate, a means by which to increase the vitality of the nation as a whole. Yet rather than view the promotion of individual responsibility for health and life chances as an artful dodge on the part of politicians, industry and employers, large numbers of us experience these ideas as common sense and moreover as empowering. That is by acting prudently, responsibly, preemptively, and even speculatively, we presume we might avoid future risk by making lifestyle changes now. In effect, we each become our own personal CEO, reducing risk and optimizing capacity through our own self-entrepreneurial marketplace decisions. And of note, this um, quote here that you see comes from um, one of the most famous American self-help authors. You can see his book there um, in the top, right next to The Secret. Self-help and advice and manners book have a very long history. Um, but in the US, there certainly was an explosion of these books in the 1980s and the 1990s, and they continue to be top sellers uh, today, highly popular. Uh, neoliberalism is more than just a set of macroeconomic policies or political actions or a form of statehood. Uh, rather, it's also a way in which individuals attempt to uh, interpret, live in, and understand the world and a way in which they interact with others. Sociologist Robert Crawford argues that in the United States, key aspects of neoliberalism have a deep basis in American Protestant work ethic cultural values as well as larger societal anxieties. In the 1970s, according to Crawford, both the economy and average incomes were stagnating. Manufacturing jobs were disappearing. The social welfare state was under attack. The power of labor unions was declining. Employers were shifting a greater share of escalating health costs onto employees and public hospitals were being closed. Under these conditions, middle-class Americans no longer felt confident that they and their children would continue to benefit from a rising standard of living as they had done for most of the 20th century. Under conditions of austerity and uncertainty then, working on oneself and more particularly working on one's health became a means by which to address larger anxieties about the changing nature of modern life and one's potentially precarious position within it. That is, by taking personal responsibility for health, this became a way to regain a sense of control. By the 1980s, this type of neoliberal thinking was deeply entrenched for Americans began to think, began to think of themselves quite readily as consumers 
advocates of their own health and directors of their own health outcomes. And today, nowhere is this more evident than the way we approach health online, the fifth key shift. According to the Pew Research Center, the majority of Americans go online to search for health and illness-related information. Moreover, many of us use the information we find online to self-diagnose. And with, with women, white people, and those of higher socioeconomic status backgrounds being most likely to do so. And just as the advent of the internet has radically shifted the modes by which we seek health and illness information, the rise of social media has transformed the ways in which we express our own experiences and connect with others around these topics. For instance, Pew Research Center investigators have found that going online to read about or watch videos about others' health and illness experiences, finding people with similar health concerns, asking health and illness related questions, posting about our own health and illness experiences, that these are common drivers of social media use, especially for those who have one or more chronic health issues. The relative anonymity of internet use may explain why those medically diagnosed as overweight or obese are particularly inclined to use the internet for these purposes. Individuals with stigmatized health conditions have been found to be strong users of the internet for health and illness related searches. But individuals do not just passively take in the information on weight loss methods they find online. Instead, they actively make decisions based upon what they read on the internet. Estimates suggest that large numbers of individuals interested in weight loss surgery not only conduct online searches to gain information, but then many of them go on to pursue a bariatric uh, procedure based upon the information they found specifically online. And then moreover, following a bariatric procedure, high numbers of bariatric patients continue to use the internet for post-operative information and support. My voice is getting a little gravelly, excuse me. So in light of these aforementioned shifts, rising population level body weight, an explosion of alarmist discourse surrounding obesity, substantial upticks in weight-based stigma and discrimination, the rise of the internet as a place in which we both seek and impart health information and at the center, neoliberal healthism, not only as a set of policies, but as a way of understanding and engaging in the world. It's in light of these factors that I believe we must situate the rise of weight loss surgery and then more particularly the experiences of bariatric patients. A little bit more background on bariatric surgery regarding the rise of it. Although the first procedures were originally developed in the 1960s, this is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, in the mid 1990s, at the end of the 20th century, few bariatric procedures were formed in the United States. And at the end of the century, beginning of the 21st century, this number increased exponentially. And one of the things that helped drive that up, especially when you see the um, 55 to 64 there, that was when the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid approved um, interventions for obesity like bariatric surgery. So um, the higher age range is the fact that Medicare, which covers uh, older people, was covering these procedures. But also the advent and refinement of laparoscopic techniques in bariatric procedures, which were associated with fewer complications than the open methods that had been utilized uh, previously. So previously you would have had an incision from the umbilicus to the sternum basically. So the use of laparoscopic techniques um, also clearly contributed to the increase in weight loss surgeries performed. Of the roughly a quarter of a million individuals who undergo bariatric surgery each year, they are disproportionately female, white, tend to be middle-aged or younger, 
and paying for their surgeries with private insurance as opposed to the government funded programs like Medicare and Medicaid that I mentioned previously, which again, cover elderly, low income and disabled individuals. And although bariatric surgery is said to provide the most durable solution to obesity, there are serious implications to having such a procedure. Um, for instance, while the in-hospital and 30-day overall mortality rates are low, complications are more commonplace. Second, with the exception of the lap band procedure, bariatric surgeries are permanent and irreversible. Technically, the gastric bypass can be reversed, but it's complicated to do. So really, it's more, it's more reasonable to say that the lap band is the one that's really reversible. And even that's not easy because it can adhere to uh, the stomach and has to be cut out. So permanent and irreversible. Third, patients must follow a very strict, lifelong, post-operative eating and nutritional supplementation plans to avoid unpleasant and potentially harmful side effects. Um, just in brief, and I can talk about this more later if you like, this is um, things like not uh, drinking 30 minutes before or after having a meal, always eating protein first, following by vegetables, um, making sure you get enough protein in at least 60 grams, minimizing carbohydrates and even fruits because of the sugars, stopping the moment you feel full, things like this, and then having potentially to take um, dietary supplements. So while regain rates, so lifelong post-operative eating and nutritional supplementation plans, um, and then regain. So while regain rates are far below those associated with dieting, um, certainly weight loss surgery is far more durable. Um, regain is nevertheless common in the bariatric patient population, particularly over time, though the amount does vary by procedure. Reoperative surgeries then, reoperative procedures following regain, where patients typically convert from one type of bariatric surgery to another, have thus become uh, more commonplace or increasing. And notably, these reoperative and conversion surgeries are associated with higher rates of adverse events that are the original surgeries. And here you can see some of the different types of conversion surgeries. This isn't even all of the possibilities, but these are some. Given what I've just said about side effects, post-operative dietary and nutritional supplementation requirements, potential for regain, the possibility of needing a revision surgery, bariatric patients as a population are quite different from other patient populations undergoing a surgical procedure including other abdominal surgeries in that they require lifelong specialized medical care and support services. And there is evidence that follow-up with a bariatric program, including not just um, surgeons themselves, but support groups and psychotherapeutic and nutrition services, that this kind of follow-up is associated with better health outcomes. However, there's some debate in the bariatric literature as to who is responsible for this long-term follow-up and long-term care. Should it be bariatric surgeons themselves or should bariatric patients move over to their primary care providers for this ongoing care? So there's some debate around this. In addition, while uh, health insurers commonly require, uh, it's usually mandatory to, for approval to get bariatric surgery approved by insurance um, to undergo both psychological assessment and pre-surgical dietary um, supervision, post-op requirements, and moreover, insurance coverage for these services are less common. Finally, there are no firmly established standardized guidelines for how support groups should be set up at surgical centers. Um, so some bariatric clinics might offer individual therapy, some might offer group therapy, 
some might offer support groups. And notably, the um, Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery Accreditation and Quality Improvement Program Joint Accreditation Standards from these two professional bodies you see here, ASMBS and the American College of Surgeons, these accreditation standards require that accredited bariatric centers persist in following up with patients long-term. So what this means is that um, if a patient is lost to care somehow, because within the first one to two years, about 70% of bariatric patients stop coming back to their home surgical clinics for follow-up visits, and they don't come to support groups. So if that happens, an accredited center um, has to follow up with them. They have to make efforts, and they have to make two different attempts, consecutive attempts, and they have to try multiple means. So you know, first missed appointment, they might try a phone call. Second one, they might try a letter. And if you know they've made two attempts and they've tried different ways of reaching the patient and they're not hearing back, they can consider the patient officially lost to care, but they have to try. Uh, they also have to have uh, hold regular uh, organized support groups for patients that are supervised by a professional. Generally, this is a registered dietitian. Yet bariatric surgical centers do not need the MBSA QIP accreditation in order to perform weight loss surgery. And what this means is that bariatric surgical centers might offer an information session to interested patients, um, people who might want to undergo a bariatric procedure so they can come and hear about it and what it would entail, but would have no requirement to hold support groups or any kind of, um, any, any kind of organized support group or, or services, uh, post-op support group services like that afterward. So individual therapy, group therapy, support groups. So partly as an effort to fill this gap, I argue that patients have often turned to one another. So all of the aforementioned shifts I suggest have helped create the conditions for bariatric biosociality. But there are a number of particular factors also pushing bariatric patients together. Um, and that, these are bariatric patients share a set of highly salient experiences, having been medically classified as obese or severely obese, having had a long history of unsuccessful dieting. One um, participant I interviewed once described this as dieting up the scale, being significantly concerned over current health problems and future health risks, undergoing bariatric surgery as a last resort with the hope that it finally provides a permanent solution. The very disorienting experience of both losing a very significant amount of weight and doing it in a very short period of time. And then finally, the difficulties making both the lifestyle and social adjustments required to live with a bariatric procedure. Now, the individuals I've spoken with and have observed have almost universally described substantial improvements in health and quality of life following surgery. You'll commonly hear bariatric patients say, best decision I ever made, just wish I had done it sooner. Um, however, ambivalence is threaded through the way they tell their stories because they also describe in stark detail the physiological and social realities and ongoing ones at that of living with a bariatric procedure um, from regular gastrointestinal distress to newfound challenges navigating sex and dating. These embodied and social particularities, I suggest, drive patients to connect following surgery. However, though patients eventually get used to living with a bariatric procedure, side effects and moreover regain can occur at any point in time, including many years postoperatively. 
thus echoing other researchers like sociologist Karen Throsby, I suggest that patient-led forums arise as spaces in which individuals help one another navigate these ongoing long-term realities of post-operative life. Herein, advice and support from other patients becomes valuable as it's seen as being based in a real life, been there, done that kind of experience. Bariatric patients are also drawn together around the lack of, or perceived lack of, adequate post-operative support at home surgical clinics, as well as inadequate knowledge about the particularities of bariatric bodies on the part of other types of providers. Patients in these forums learn how to understand, evaluate, and communicate medical information so that they're taken seriously by medical providers. They assist with one another with these tasks from learning what blood work to request to what supplements to take given the malabsorptive nature of some kinds of procedures like the gastric bypass. And weight loss surgery patients collectively negotiate ongoing issues of stigma. Bariatric surgery has frequently been portrayed as an effortless method of weight loss, whereas dieting and exercise are portrayed as involving real work and thus framed as more virtuous. In effect, although bariatric patients address what is considered to be a pathological bodily state, by choosing a surgical means of doing so, they are reinscribed as lazy and amoral, having taken the easy way out. Thus, patients need support from similarly situated others around anti-bariatric attitudes. And one of the ways you'll see this show up is not just um, patients um, being upset at having been accused of taking the easy way out, but the fact that many patients won't even tell people in their lives, their coworkers, some of their relatives that they've had surgery um, in order to avoid these kinds of accusations. And they'll just make, oh, I've been changed my diet, I'm doing paleo, whatever. They'll just find some way to sort of um, explain the weight loss. Of course, critiques have been raised about using the lens of biosociality to understand contemporary issues of health and illness, identity and collectivity. And a couple are worth noting for my purposes today. Um, for instance, White argues that the focus on emergent health identities runs the risk of overemphasizing the importance of biosocial connections in the lives of people who participate in diagnosis-specific forms. And it's true that all the patients, of all the patients I've spoken with and have observed, um, there is variation in terms of how frequently and how deeply they participate in bariatric forms and communities. However, I would suggest that although the relationships with bariatric patients are typically not central to their lives, they're nonetheless quite significant to them. And they are significant precisely because this very particular set of physiological, physical, psychological, and social experiences that bariatric patients undergo and continue to live with are typically not shared with the key individuals in their lives. What's more, the patients in these forms often need support from other patients around the shifts that dramatic weight loss causes sometimes within their central relationships. So ironically then, this distance allows patients to share highly personal and sensitive information about their lives and get support, something they often cannot do with those with whom they're otherwise most close. Lemke suggests that much of the research on biosociality, particularly that that focuses on patient advocacy groups, has overemphasized choice, empowerment, and optimism. But of course, Rabinow himself argued that new forms of identity and sociality forged under conditions of rapid change in understanding, of, um, understanding about and treatment for disease 
would intersect with, exist in tension with, and amplify older classifications and older categories of classifications and identities. And I think this is important um, for just as I believe that a number of forces cohere to push bariatric patients together, other conditions pull them apart, creating tensions and divisions. So when patients bring concern about regain and or side effects, side effects to support forms, they're often met with empathy and support. But should they suggest that the responsibility for these side effects or regain lies with anyone other than themselves, they're often shot down. For instance, <clears throat> those who are farther out uh, of their surgeries are often referred to as vets or veterans in the parlance of these communities. They'll often remind other patients of the unique nature of their surgical bodies and stress that it's their responsibility to adopt the proper behaviors. You'll often hear them say, work with the tool. It's just a tool. You know, the surgeon gave you this tool. It's your responsibility to work with it. So it's stress that it's their responsibility to adopt the proper behaviors, work with the tool. Should they stray, or at least admit to straying, um, they're reminded to, in the parlance of these communities, get back on track and go back to basics, which means a return to recommended clinical protocols. Um, ironically, sometimes the return that they're returning to, the place in the protocols they're returning to is actually not what is um, recommended by um, registered dietitians. So they go back to a liquid diet, which registered dietitians would tell you it's not what they should actually be doing. But so as one commenter in an online forum, I observed put it, of all the posts I've seen, I've ever seen here, and of all the doctor's advice that has been relayed, I've seen no cases where a doctor is directly responsible for what a patient puts in his, her mouth, particularly when counter to medical recommendation, end quote. Of course, this sort of advice obscures the fact that socioeconomic status differently shapes access to resources and supports that allow one to more easily comply with recommended courses of action, as with disease risk and social determinants of health barriers more broadly, Class is thus not only a social category, but a biological one. And as I noted uh, earlier, reoperative procedures are becoming more commonplace where patients are converting from one type of bariatric surgery to another. And they're doing this in the hopes of addressing regain and sometimes side effects like GERD. So even though patients largely, I mean, overwhelmingly attribute the responsibility for successful outcomes to patients themselves, there is a good deal of support now for conversion surgeries. But herein, the responsibility remains with the patients. So once the patient finally has the right surgery for her body, it's again a tool she must work with responsibly in order to achieve desired health and weight loss outcomes. With this said, I've observed that tension circulates in bariatric communities around which form of surgery was originally chosen, the amount of weight lost and issues of regain specifically those who chose surgeries associated with more durable weight loss or have had um, more success losing weight, they've lost a greater amount of their excess weight or they've uh, maintained their weight loss. These patients become the objects of envy and at times resentment and bitterness from other patients. Another area of rupture related to envy pertains to reconstructive plastic surgery. So rapidly losing a large amount of weight typically results in substantial residual loose skin. Some tightening of this excess skin can occur over time, particularly for younger patients whose skin is more elastic. But for older patients and those patients of any age who lose a very large amount of weight, 
they're typically left, left with significant excess skin, um, something that actually makes them appear larger than they are and can make finding clothing that fits difficult. So while the transformation, the dramatic transformation that weight loss surgery entails does provide patients with increased confidence about their overall appearance, substantial ambivalence remains surrounding uh, weight loss and body image. And unlike bariatric surgery itself, reconstructive plastic surgeries are rarely covered by insurance in the United States, with one exception, and that's the paniculectomy. And this is a procedure which removes excess skin from the abdomen. Um, but even this procedure is only covered after a patient provides substantial documentation from medical professionals that it's medically necessary. And of all the patients that I've observed and interviewed, very few have ever been able to afford reconstructive plastic surgeries. And while I've heard patients speak with bitterness about this fact, I've also observed that those who have been able to access such procedures downplay their importance. For instance, for the better part of the year, I was observing two different in-person support forms at one of the largest um, hospital systems in here in New York City. Um, they went on for, these observations went on for about nine months, but were cut short, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. During that time, um, so there was two groups. One group was for um, all patients, including uh, patients, uh, potential patients, people interested in bariatric surgery, uh, including also perioperative patients, pa patients a couple years out, patients more than a decade out, everyone. The other one was only for patients who were two years more out. So newly post-operative patients could not come to this one. Um, potential patients could not come. So I was observing both of them. And in the all patient group, um, when uh, questions about loose skin would be brought up by visiting potential patients or newly post-operative patients, these veteran patients who had had reconstructive plastic surgery would discuss what kinds of procedures they had had and then would remark that they felt very fortunate for having had the ability to pursue uh, plastic surgery. But then an interesting thing would happen um, and that would be that they would often downplay the importance of reconstructive plastic surgery. So for instance, during one of my observations, the opening patient speaker for the meeting, every meeting starts with um, a long time patient telling his or her story uh, the opening patient speaker for the meeting referred to post-operative reconstructive surgery as a first world problem. Another man concurred saying that, quote, health and freedom were the true prize. The patient speaker then stood up and showed the results of her tummy tuck by pressing her shirt flat against her abdomen. And she said she had gotten the procedure covered by insurance. But then she went on to say that the procedure was medically necessary, by which she meant it was undertaken to address persistent skin rashes that were caused by hanging abdominal skin. And she said it was not taken to look cute. Following this, a second woman recommended the use of tight girdles throughout the weight loss process to minimize loose skin. And a third suggested that slathering one's body with moisturizer during the rapid weight loss process was key to minimizing loose skin. So I view these remarks as efforts to diffuse class-based tensions and divisions around differing economic access to reconstructive plastic surgery within bariatric patient forms. So by way of a wrap up, I would say that within a larger climate of austerity and precarity, the desire to transform health and the body through surgical means and the experience of doing so is an axis around which bariatric patients interact, create community, 
identity and collective and collectively negotiate the ongoing requirements and responsibilities of living with a bariatric procedure. Bariatric biosocialities are places in which patients collectively navigate issues of risk, stigma, uncertainty, fear, hope, faith, all while working to achieve normative health and aesthetic standards and a normative subjectivity. I would further note, and I haven't discussed this admittedly, that bariatric biosociality is a highly gendered phenomenon with women making up not only the majority of the patients, but the, on, uh, the majority of people who participate in these support forms. Um, however, biosocial community around bariatric surgery should not be thought of as a harmonious whole. Rather, this type of biosociality can be centered around commonality and alliance, as well as fraught with conflict and division. And these fractures can be traced upon pre-existing fault lines of power and inequality. Thank you.